It's the Healthy Woman Show on WJR with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. Welcome to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, on this edition of WJR's Healthy Woman Show, some very important information. We, in honor of breast cancer awareness, are going to talk to a great doctor about diagnosing breast cancer, how we work together with oncologists as fertility specialists, what you can do to preserve your fertility when you are not ready to have a a child, and some fun things for Halloween that you might not know about. A great show coming up next. WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, since October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we thought it would be a good idea to check in with someone to talk a little bit about this important issue for women. Our guest is Dr. Lisa Awan. She is with Beaumont Hospital Dearborn. She is a diagnostic radiologist, and I know you have got a lot of questions for her. I do. And Dr. Wan, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Of course, anytime. And I really appreciate you being here because in the past, we've interviewed breast surgeons, breast oncologists, but we've never interviewed a a radiologist who has a specialty in breast imaging. So I would love to first find out, excuse me, what what made you want to be a radiologist? And I know you went to Wayne State. You go, girl. So did I. (laughs) Um, So what made you choose radiology and go into doing a fellowship in breast imaging? So I, yeah, I, I didn't really know too much about radiology from before I went into medical school, but once I did a rotation in it, I kind of liked the behind-the-scenes uh, feel that, you know, you were kind of detecting things and diagnosing things. And um, when I did radiology, I rotated in breast imaging, and that's when I knew this is it for me. Like, this is my calling. Um, a lot of people think of radiologists. They don't realize that actually we do see patients and we do perform biopsies. And I really like that part of breast imaging, that kind of connection with the patient in addition to reading their mammograms. And that's kind of what really drove me to um, have this like passion for trying to find breast cancer at an early stage so that we could really help these women live long and fulfilling lives. Well, God bless you for doing what you do. And, you know, when you get your mammogram, it's always stressful. Um, as First of mm-hmm. all, it's not the most fun. So they've got you in weird positions and they squeeze yeah. your breast and say, hold your breath, hold your breath and taking all these images. <laughs> and then you're anxiously waiting for either the letter that says your mammogram is normal or like I had one time, you know, we need you back for an ultrasound. So when you are doing your uh, viewing of the images, can you let us know what you're looking for, what's the most suspicious, what are benign findings, and, and how you proceed with recommending further evaluation or intervention? 
Yeah, of course. So I do agree. It's very, it's, it's not, you know, fun for these patients coming in to get mammograms, um, the compression and all that, but I w- and then getting the fear of getting called back. So I do want to alleviate some of that by saying that out of every 100 women, for example, who get a screening mammogram, 90 of those will be told their mammograms are normal. So only about 10 of the 100 are even going to get called back. And then out of those 10, about six will call them back. About six of those will get to go home. And four of them are the ones that we're going to still iffy about. Two of those will just be told to do a follow-up. And so out of the 100 women who get a screening, only two will end up needing a biopsy usually. Um, And then out of those two biopsies, 80% of the time biopsies are not cancer. So really, we're really fishing, fishing, fishing for those tiny little things that we're catching at a very early stage. Those um, are great numbers. Mm-hmm. Reassuring. Don't yeah. you think, Ann? Absolutely. Yeah. I did not so, know that. Mm-mm. If you're called back, it's okay. A lot of women get called back. If you need a biopsy, it's okay. A lot of women will get a biopsy and then still be told that it's nothing. Um, and when we do find these things, these aren't women, for the most part, that are like feeling a lump or actually, you know, knowing that something's going on. These are ones where we're catching it very early and very tiny. So those are the women that are having like the excellent survival rates. Um, So even if you get called back, it's okay. It's probably really tiny. That's my message. At what age should women start getting mammograms, doctor? Um, So uh, the Society of Breast Imaging, American um, College of Radiology, uh, we very strongly believe that the best chance to save the most amount of lives is starting every year at age 40. Or if you have a first-degree relative, such as a mom or sister, 10 years before their diagnosis, um, but never before 30. So, so our recommendation every year, starting at age 40, that, that's exactly what, what we think is really saving the most amount of lives. And then from then on, you should have a mammogram yearly? Yeah. So every year, um, that's the most power we have to find the cancer small because from year to year we can look and compare and if there's even a subtle change from the last year or two we can pick it up right away versus waiting two years or waiting three years um, where the cancer yeah we'll pick it up but it it, we could have caught it earlier. And is there an average age at which point a woman's risk for breast cancer gets pretty high? So obviously the older we get um, the higher the chance that you might develop a breast cancer is. However, um, we don't, there's no stop age that is dictated by us. It's mostly whatever the patient and their physician themselves feel. You know, if someone is a 85-year-old and they're healthy, by all means, they can still have yearly screening mammograms. Um, if they're someone who's maybe not even going to pursue a treatment, for example, for various reasons, they can stop getting the mammograms at that age. However, um, what, what I really want to uh, focus on is even though more people get cancer as they get older, the cancers that are more aggressive and the ones that actually might kill you are actually in the younger age group. So mm-hmm. between 40 to 50, um, those are the ones that really can um, be more aggressive and grow faster and tend to spread faster. So we almost care more about that age group, even though 
as women get older, more and more of them will have cancer later. Well, and the thing, the numbers you just gave us of reassurance that out of those hundred, you know, that most people will be fine. You know, Katie Couric, I think everyone knows she's made it very public that she was diagnosed with breast cancer and she was reminded that she was six months late on getting her mammogram and she was very diligent about all of her other checkups and when she got this mammogram six months later they noted that she had early breast cancer and god bless she's getting treated and and Mm -hmm. it is early cancer treatable and she's most likely going to be fine but it's it really it brings home the fact that there are things that we as women should and need to be doing and we take care of everyone else in our life and everyone else comes first we're the nurturers and then time goes by and it's not like she probably did it on purpose it was just things happen and life happens and you know this is an important important date to put in your calendar to make sure you are on it and you're on it every year so I have a question what does breast cancer look like on an x-ray um, so when you have a mammogram, you are looking at a combination of two types of tissue. There's fat and then there's dense breast tissue. And some women have really dense breast tissue in their whole breast, and some women have all fat in their breast. So fat shows up as black, and a cancer will show up white. So if somebody has all fat in their breast and you grow cancer, it's pretty easy to spot. If you're just looking for something kind of white and kind of like has some you know, fibrosis from the cancer growing there. Uh, however, if a woman has dense breasts, their whole breast will be white. And so we're almost looking for a white cancer and a white background. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more challenging. Um, and then there are also things called calcifications, which are really tiny, almost like little grains of salt or sand. They're very, very small. And we're trained to look for those and to know when they're suspicious. Um, with you know, we really zoom in and magnify. So there are really tiny things that we're looking at on the mammogram, um, and there's some subtle changes that can happen as well that aren't really a cancer yet, but maybe could become one that we're also looking for. And you mentioned dense breasts. Mm-hmm. I hear that a lot. My breasts are dense, and and a, yeah. and a mammogram won't be able to necessarily te- detect. So I've heard of, you know, our ultrasounds better, MRIs to detect breast cancer. What do you do if you have dense breasts? What's the best screening for those patients? So um, always, always a mammogram is for everybody. Um, that's kind of like a map of the breast. It shows you everything that's going on in both sides, and. Um, Technology, as of late, has been really good for breasts. There's a lot of new innovations, new technologies, including the 3D mammogram, which is kind of becoming the norm now. Um, it's a much, much better mammogram. I like to compare it um, to, like, flipping through a photo album of the breast versus a 2D mammogram, which is just like a still photo. Mm. So you kind of really get a good look. So women who have dense breasts should definitely always get a 3D mammogram now that they're widely available. And then in addition to that, they're recommended to have a whole breast screening ultrasound, um, which is an ultrasound that kind of looks at the whole breast as well. That's now available at, you know, a lot of places in the country. Um, MRIs are more reserved for women that are considered high risk, like they have um, more than 20% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer or they're a carrier of something like the BRCA gene, for example. So MRIs aren't necessarily just for dense breasts. That's that's a little bit more high-risk category. 
And before we let you go, Dr. Lisa Awan, this might be a silly question, but I got to ask, because a lot of women in the audience are probably thinking to themselves, why don't they ask this? So the question Mm -hmm. is, is there any research underway to make a mammogram more comfortable for women? That would be nice. Um, Yeah, that would be. I think that a lot of the newer machines, they're faster, so they're quicker, they're taking the pictures quicker. Um, Unfortunately, that compression that we use, even though it causes some discomfort, it's very important because it reduces motion and also reduces the amount of radiation that is needed. So I know it's uncomfortable, but um, it's important for us, and that's why we have we have to do it for this picture. Uh, but the machines that are newer, they're faster, and they're a little bit, I would hope, gentler as well. Dr. Lisa Awan, Beaumont Hospital Dearborn Diagnostic Radiologist, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this really important issue. Of course, anytime. It was a pleasure. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We'll be back right after this. Dr. Carroll, what a great conversation with Dr. Lisa Awan, the Beaumont Hospital Dearborn Diagnostic Radiologist. That was really important information for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's, it's truly, truly was, and I really liked the numbers. She was comforting, she was kind, she was encouraging, and most people get their mammograms will get a positive result of meaning that it's going to be a normal result. Um, but there's a couple percent that uh, she re, re, uh, relayed that will have the diagnosis of breast cancer. And you've got some really important information for that small percentage, and you can help them. And they need to know this. And it's important to know that cancer is being, breast cancer is being detected so much earlier, God bless that whole team, that the survival rates are higher. And it used to be back when in the day you have cancer, forget about having Mm. children, let's just get the cancer cured. And the chemotherapy agents would have the negative effect of altering slash destroying the ovaries and the eggs within and putting patients in the menopause. But now that the current treatments are just so fabulous in curing the cancers, the oncologists are very active in educating patients about questions of how to handle their fertility. So what will happen is that a breast cancer team will contact us and it is considered a fertility emergency. Mm-hmm. They'll contact us that there is a patient diagnosed with breast cancer and we will see that patient or someone on our team will see that patient within a couple of days to then educate them about what their fertility options uh, could be. So what are these fertility options? So what do you say to these patients? Because they've got to be really stressed out. They are. Yeah. They're stressed out yeah. with their their cancer diagnosis and the regimen they're about to embark. But most of them really want to know what their fertility choices are because, especially at that young age, they really want their families. So there are essentially three choices of what we give the patients. One is the ability to do egg or embryo freezing. Uh, and that is where if they don't have a partner and they're they're not in that situation, we could give do an IVF cycle and freeze eggs for when they're ready to get the green light from their oncologist to try. If they have a partner, then it's highly recommended that we fertilize those eggs and create embryos and genetically test them so that they have that ability. 
the timing of this, usually what I have experienced is that the patient's diagnosed with breast cancer and she will either have had her surgery, her mastectomy, or have it planned. And then there's about a six to eight or so week window between that and her chemotherapy. So they'll contact us. We will schedule and we could start fertility shots right then. We don't have to wait for a period necessarily. And there is a breast cancer protocol where we use a medication called Femira that they also use to treat breast cancer with fertility drugs. And we will go on in that window of the six to eight weeks and stimulate them once or twice, whatever we can to get those eggs. Then we call the oncologist. The patient then goes and gets her port in and she's on her way to getting cured from cancer. And so we will have those eggs and embryos available. And depending on the type of cancer, the receptivity with hormones would determine when the green light happens of when she can try to have a baby, whether it's one year, three years, five years. And so we take the recommendation from the oncologist to say, okay, now she's cancer-free for this period of time. She can go on and have a baby or she's got a kind of breast cancer that we don't want her to get pregnant again. Let's find her a gestational carrier so that someone else can carry her embryos and her pregnancy to keep her safe. So that is the one choice that we have that has a time limit to it. Option two, which is kind of gray and whether mm-hmm. it works or not, mm-hmm. but it's definitely not going to hurt, is to try to suppress those ovaries with a Lupron. It's a medication to put you in the temporary menopause. And there's literature that says it sometimes will help. Some Others say it doesn't help at all. But it's a medication that can be taken during the course of chemotherapy and several months after the half-life is over that chemotherapy to try to suppress um, not the mature eggs, they're done, but maybe the teenage eggs that haven't white, right, started to develop yet uh, to see if we can preserve some fertility potential. And then I've had patients that have said, you know what, I hear you. I'm just so stressed out. I'm so scared right now. Thank you for telling me, but I want to cure my cancer. Hmm. All right, let's go for it, right? cure your cancer, there always is the option of egg donor. So, you know, the age cutoff to use an egg donor is in the early 50s. So this way she can cure her cancer, get her green light, and there's either known egg donor, and we've had patients where their sisters have donated their eggs. I had one where her goddaughter donated her eggs, or there's anonymous egg donors where women in their 20s will donate their eggs. We fertilize with the partner's sperm, and then either she or a gestational carrier can hold the embryos. One of the concerns, obviously, though, is in option number two is, you know, don't the cancer drugs affect the egg? Mm -hmm. Isn't that what you're really worried about? They do. And with the second approach, with the idea of putting someone into the temporary menopause, it decreases the stimulation of, of hormones to that ovary so that those theoretically those eggs don't develop. Oh, interesting. And but you know, it's You're a little worried about that. That's not that they're worried, but how effective it is. Is is some articles say it could have some help, but others are like, hey, it's worth a try, but depending on the chemotherapy agents, it may not make a difference. So is it fair to say as an expert in this, you would recommend option number one? We always talk about option number one harvesting first because it is her eggs with you know, her ability to have her genetics continue as, and or her eggs with her partner's sperm so that they can have a child together. But everyone deserves choices. And the fact that they have three of them gives them a sense of ownership 
and gives them a chance to think about it and decide what works. The other thing is is we there's a live strong where cancer survivors there is uh, help financially with doing IVF mm-hmm. and uh, you know we have our own where we give uh, half off the IVF when we try to find free drugs. Wow, that's awfully nice. That's wonderful. You know, it's so interesting as you're talking to me about this is I'm just blown away by the advancement in this. How long has this been going on where this option has been available for, for women? years. Really? Yeah, it started out as a research. I feel like not enough is known about it. Or you know, people more, don't hear about it as much. We're getting more and more phone calls from okay. oncologists, not just for breast cancer. We've done this for colon cancer, lymphoma, leukemias, uh, borderline ovarian cancers, uh, but mostly breast cancer. And uh, kudos to the oncologists who are having those conversations. And and again, this show is important because we now know about how an X-ray, you know, finds the breast cancer, and that you were picking them up early. Survival rates are getting better and better and and they're your for your fertility is an option now yeah it's incredible information and really important for people that are struggling mm-hmm. like this and coming up next uh, doc we are going to talk a little bit more with dr. Nicole Boudris about how this option is available for older women mm-hmm. and women who have not started having children. So this is very interesting and important information. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. The conversation continues in just a few minutes. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. And Dr. Carol, we now bring Dr. Nicole Boudris from the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health into this conversation about freezing eggs, Mm -hmm. saving eggs. Mm -hmm. Women who are a little bit older, they need to think about this if they haven't started having children yet. So I'm going to let you kick this off. Dr. Boudris, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Nicole, I thought this would be a good time to talk about what we're seeing in the office more and more lately. And, you know, after this last segment talking about breast cancer and fertility preservation, you and I talked about the importance of letting people know that for women in general, it's probably important to consider the option of egg and embryo freezing because I don't know about what you're seeing, which I think is the same as myself, is I am getting more and more women in their mid to late 40s, early 50s who are phenomenal. These women rock the house. They're professionals, physicians, lawyers, business owners, educators, and they'll come to me and say, I'm ready for a kid now. And they're 44, 48, 52. And they look fabulous. They've taken care of themselves. That Nutritionally, they're fit. They're at a point in their life where they're ready for children. And then I have to tell them that their fertility window is closed. And it's devastating uh, to many of them. Are you f- seeing the same uh, in, in the offices in, in Plymouth and Bloomfield where we're practicing together? I know in Warren I am. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I'm with you. It breaks my heart when you see someone or you see someone who maybe they are in a second marriage and now they want to have a child with their new partner and... You, 
you know, we're seeing the same thing where that window has closed and now we're talking about different options. So very common. And I think it's something that with all these celebrities now having babies older, that patients are given this false reassurance that whenever they're ready, they're going to be able to have a baby. And that's not necessarily true if you're talking about using your own eggs. This is true. And I think you've heard the same thing as myself, that almost every single time I get the, I wish I would have known. I wish someone would have told me. And you remember years ago, uh, Nicole, I don't know, you were probably still a baby then, but um, you know, there was a, a backlash. I think it was on Newsweek or something where, you know, physicians, OBGYNs and primary care doctors were talking to women about, have you thought about having children? What do you, you might want to think about having children. And there were women who were offended by that question and upset by that question. They were saying, wait a minute, it's my choice for fertility. It's my choice to decide when to have a child. And, and these physicians were not making them have children and you know that one one woman had commented they're making us stay home with and and have kids and 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 not have our careers and and that's not the case it's i think we don't have the luxury of men to have a long reproductive lifespan slash cycle our reproductive potential is a short window and you know the average age of menopause is 50 and you know women who are 42 and over many of the fertility centers are talking about other options for families like egg donor because when you're over 42 43 over 90% of the embryos you're making are genetically abnormal so you know we all know that person who's 46 48 who had a baby you know on on their own but that is a miracle baby and most women in that age are going to not be able to do it. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to realize that even as early as 35, we're seeing a decline in egg numbers and fertility. So I think being tested and to see, well, hey, where are you at? Because it's tragic when you see someone who is still fairly young and has really has low egg numbers and they say exactly the same thing. I wish I would have thought of this sooner. So I think having awareness and getting tested is is key in having this conversation. And I'm doing this in honor of one of one of my patients who who and here's the other thing is this young lady, God bless her, was was told by a a mentor uh, who had happened to her is she was ready for a child and her, her, her she was too old fertility wise to have a child with her own egg and told this person, you know, don't be me. And then time happens, life happens, busyness happens. And so COVID in, happened. Yeah. In honor of her, you know, she said, please let, let people be aware that, you know, optimal fertility is is, you know, in your early 20s. And like you said, 35, it starts to go down over 40. It falls off a cliff. So what do you do about this? Well, be aware. So like you said, you might want to get testing to uh, assess your fertility potential. And Nicole and I have the ability to look at that through your age, your BMI, hormones such as FSH, AMH, uh, an ultrasound looking for an antral follicle count. That combination would give us an idea of your fertility potential. But even if those numbers are normal and you're in an age group where you're older, you may still have the struggle of fertility issues. So, Nicole, we do egg freezing, right, and embryo freezing. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. So egg freezing and embryo freezing are really um, very similar processes. With egg freezing, typically what we're doing is having the patient take medications to get as many eggs as we can to grow at one time. And then we do a the 30-minute outpatient procedure where we go through the vagina, suction out the eggs, and the fluid around the eggs. So for patients that are having egg freezing, once we get those eggs, those eggs are frozen, the patient is done. Um, how many eggs we get will really depend on each, each individual person is going to have a number that their body can make at one time. So there's not like a normal number. Um, so for egg freezing, that's how that works. And then for embryo freezing, we take those eggs that we've retrieved, we fertilize them with sperm to create embryos and then grow them for about five days in the lab. And then the embryos that make it to a certain stage will get frozen. So those eggs and sperm can stay frozen for many, many years. The longest that embryos have been utilized after being frozen is 20 years. So they've got good longevity. And the thing to remember, Anne, is that eggs are more fragile than embryos. So you're going to lose about 30% of the eggs with the thaw, and it does not guarantee pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of thought of as a backup. So can you just freeze the eggs? Mm-hmm. You can just so you freeze you have an the option. Eggs. Yes. So once we know how many eggs we have, we will freeze the mature eggs. And then when we're ready to go, we would thaw uh, those eggs and fertilize with the sperm. But it doesn't guarantee pregnancy. And depending on how old you are, we need a certain amount of eggs frozen for a 75% chance of one baby. So what we usually will tell patients is if you got your sperm donor and you like them, uh, you might want to fertilize those eggs with the sperm because embryos are much more resilient when you freeze and thaw. So you'll lose less than 10% of embryos with an embryo that, uh, for t- preservation than with eggs. So if if you're with your partner and you like them and you think you're going to be with them, uh, choose to do the uh, fertilization with the sperm and then as opposed to the eggs. And the other thing is with embryos, you can do genetic testing of them. Mm. So then you'll know truly how many genetically normal embryos you have. So I've had professional couples who uh, were starting off in their in their teaching career or their law practice, and they said, hey, you know what? We're not ready for kids now. They did embryo uh, preservation. They did genetic testing. Uh, you know, they had four normal embryos. They want two kids. They're like, okay, we're good. We got four as a backup, and maybe in three years when we're senior partners, we'll start to ha- try to have our own children, but this is what we did to take ownership of our fertility. Stupid layperson question here. Are women born with a certain number of eggs, and does that number stay with you your entire life? How does this work? All right, Nicole, I'll let you get that one. All right, so yes, in and we actually have the most number of eggs that we're ever going to have in our lifetime when we're still inside of our mother's womb. Oh, so wow. by the time we are born, we have about six million, about we've gone from six million eggs to about one to three million eggs. And by the time we have our first period, we're at a couple hundred thousand eggs. So we steadily lose eggs until about age 35 or 37 at a pretty low uh, rate. And then that rate that we lose eggs accelerates. So we start to lose them faster after age 35. So that's where this kind of, as we get older, we want patients to be coming in and being evaluated sooner because of that, that decrease. So you're dealing with a decrease in eggs. This is very interesting, Mm -hmm. actually. And you're also dealing with 
a decrease in the quality of the egg as you age too, right? Correct. Yeah. So that's an issue too. Right. So not only, and, and every month there's a, there's a different cohort of eggs in different stages of development. And in nature, only one gets all the hormone and the blood supply, hormone stimulation, the blood supply to pop off. But when you use the fertility drugs, you have the ability to stimulate more eggs okay. in that cohort so that it doesn't put you in the menopause earlier or anything like that. It, it captures in that particular phase of that woman's cycle of of the continuum of egg development where you're capturing those. So, and not only do you have less eggs, but those eggs when they separate gen- chromosomally, they're more um how do you say older and frigid and rigid mm-hmm. and they don't separate the chromosomes as well as they used to, and that's where the quality issues um, are part of the problem. So, so interesting and an important conversation for women who are getting older but still want to start a family. And you know what? Women are amazing. I've said that a million times, and I'm so excited and proud to be a a woman. Um, But you know what? You can have everything. You can have both. Um, But the thing is, we want to make awareness that if you're with a second partner or you're starting over with a new family or you're professional or you just waited because you weren't ready for kids, know this, be aware of this, and and take ownership of that fertility so you've got choices um, to optimize your chance of being a parent. Absolutely. I had no idea. Very, very interesting conversation. Dr. Nicole Boudres, thank you for your time today. It was great talking to you as usual. Oh my gosh. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Ann. Thanks so much, Carol. All right, Nicole. And you are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We'll be back right after this. And Dr. Carroll, since it's October, we cannot leave this show without talking about Halloween. So first question I have for you, this is a little quiz. What is the most popular Halloween candy? Hmm. I'd say Tootsie Rolls. Well, that's an interesting guess, but it is... Reese's peanut butter cups. You're kidding, really? No. What's your favorite? What's your favorite candy? Mine is um, the Mounds bars, which you hardly get anymore. Wow, you could make out on Halloween because I think most people <laughs> kind of set those aside. <laughs> yeah, well, mm-hmm. yeah. So here are the top 10 Skittles, Snickers, Sour Patch Kids, oh, good. Yep. Kit Kat, Twix. Hershey Bar, Butterfinger, and Nerds. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. I'm with the number one. I love the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Interesting. Oh, my gosh. But I love this time of year. It's so beautiful out, number one. But number two, everywhere you go, all these houses are decorated with these great Halloween and fall decorations. And there's a ton of really fun things to do. You can go to the Apple Orchard. But also, Blake's has got Halloween things to do, right? They do. And we, uh, we're looking at, you and I, some unique things, different things to do besides, you know, the trick-or-treating and the trunk-or-treating. And uh, we kind of looked up a few things. And Zombie, uh, Zombie 
paintball is <laughs> at Blake's. So if you want to, you know, get in costume and have a ball, uh, they have that ability to do that. And of course, haunted houses. And the number one, the one haunted house, the one haunted house, Erebus. I was driving home from Tennessee the other day, and Erebus was the number one haunted house in the nation. And that's, yeah. And I don't know about you, but Have I don't want to pay. No, I don't oh, want to be paid to be go? scared. No, I don't want to be paid to be scared. That is like not my thing. I, you know, for someone to jump out with me and all that gore, you know, whoever. Uh, but there is something that we were made aware of and haven't gone to yet, but totally want to do that. And it is at the Masonic Temple. It's called Theater Bazaar. It is a huge masquerade ball. Everyone gets dressed up and there are different shows. There's cabaret. There's special rooms. There's a little, I guess, fairy that has absinthe and and and. And if she taps on your shoulder and invites you, you go into a special room. There's acts. And how we found out about this is my daughter, Elise, always likes to do funky things, Mm -hmm. right? Sure. Uh, By the way, we were in Nashville and this girl flew in a World War II plane. So I'm just saying this girl likes different stuff. And isn't that a great town? Oh, it's 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 in Athens, Tennessee is where she did it. And I'm just so impressed. But um, but she wanted to go axe throwing in Ferndale. And our axe throwing instructor has a talent of of hammering nails in her nose. And what? Yeah. And but she is one of the acts in uh, this theater bazaar. So if you want a crazy event and every floor I guess is something different and, and eight floors yeah and every floor is is some different theme and it's got all these crazy shows uh, but I think it's available uh, the this weekend and the next weekend so check that out but you know that's another different thing to do that uh, you know you, you would find maybe you know top on your list is, you know, something to do in the future. Is it for families or is it more for adults? Would I you think it's more for adults. More I really adult do. Activity. I think, it, yeah, it would be more uh, let's get together and, and I would, but check it out. I would, uh, you know, I, I would, it's called, it's the greatest masquerade on earth. And uh, it, it definitely sounds bizarre and... Sounds like a blast. Yeah. Sounds like, really totally. fun, yeah. yeah. So at our house, we do a lot of pumpkin carving. We always have. Do you still do that at your place? Is there we pumpkin do. carving going on? And then do you take the seeds and make pumpkin seeds? We do. We do. And we're the ones that rush home and my husband is frantically carving this pumpkin. But and, and he's he's the biggest little kid of anybody. I mean, he is the one that makes me go to Costco and get the big, big, big bars. Oh, and, so your uh, house is a good place to go. Oh, yeah. It's like, come on over to our house. And, and we got the fire pit going and we have got the wine hanging out or the cocktail hanging out. And he's, you know, whipping up these faces and we got the light inside. And then those pumpkin seeds are so good. And afterwards. they're good for you. They are. They are. And I'm not a pumpkin girl. So the rest of the pumpkin, the, the animals can get. But the pumpkin seeds I'll eat. And it's my understanding in the medical world that pumpkin seeds are good for men, for men's prostate health. Oh, well, that's good to know. So there's a little tidbit for you. So guys, eat up. Yes, and the way to do them is take them, soak them in water and salt. You could use Celtic salt to make it healthier overnight, and then bake them the next day at 350. Oh, for how long? Uh, I really just... 
keep testing them just to make sure that they're nice and crispy. But you've got to soak them overnight in salt water, and they're fabulous. You know what? I've never done that part. And I always get the gooey, like, rinds next to it. Okay, I'm going to try that. we got to go. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. You've been listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. On behalf of Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, I'm Ann Thomas, and we hope you have a great night. The Healthy Woman Show with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk has been presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health.